Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening. Whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in, indeed welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we journey into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. With me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Hello. And today's guest for episode 65 of the Event Horizon is... Raul Mangilardi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Yes, you did. Beautifully so. <laughs> First take. <laughs> Excellent. And welcome to the show. We're glad to have you with us. Oh, thanks a lot. I'm really excited to be here and I appreciate it very much. So, we are talking this week about your book. Yeah. Susan? What? Uh, I'm sorry, you caught me. You caught me on the thing. You caught me um, doing research. Next to the gods series. Thank you. The first of which is when gods walk among us. And they do. Apparently, they do. And they talk to us, and they say some stuff we don't want to hear. <laughs> uh, they do. They, you know, they're a mercurial bunch. They're sort of based allegorically on the Greek and Roman pantheon with a lot of other pantheons thrown in uh, over the years and through my interest in theology and history and Mm -hmm. science and things. So, yeah, they're kind of a, they're a good group of aliens. They're basically benevolent and beneficent, but they do like to be uh, paid attention to. It's sort Mm -hmm. of a character situation with them that they do appreciate being not worshipped but adhered to and paid attention to and of course it causes a little bit of problems with themselves yeah well they do seem to be sort of you know salt of the earth gods they put their pantheons on one leg at a time they do (laughs) come closer so i can hurt you (laughs) (laughs) they do i the uh um the description of the book uh, that I read on Amazon uh, intimates that it that the level of world building in this book mm-hmm. is uh, of a particularly uh, complex and rich variety. It's complicated, all right. <laughs> in the first scene, we see them just finishing up building their Dyson Sphere, or what we would call a Dyson Sphere. Very good, thank you. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Having split their star into three stars, which somehow is supposed to 
make it last longer. I haven't figured out this, figured this out, but of course, my my personal technology is probably about ten thousand years uh, too <laughs> soon to to know this science. So that's a really good point, point Susan. That's a really good point, Susan. And the reason they do that is because once they have put the star in the in the Dyson sphere interior, they were concerned about heat and the generation of heat and radiation that would be overwhelming uh, so that they decided to neutron the stars as it were in order to keep things a little bit cooler so that they could accrete the heat through the star through the uh, Dyson sphere and therefore use it again and that's how they light up the exterior of the sphere which of course makes anyone thinking about attacking them think twice about it. I suppose it does. So it's a land with no no night, but no stars. They have a kind of a night. They have what they call night um, periods, where because of the interior revolving of the worlds within the sphere worlds, as they call it. Yeah, there's more than one sphere, which makes sense, I guess. Yeah, they 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 have you know they have different planets within the sphere, so that as they revolve into night and into darkness around the regular around the the three solar stars, they have a semblance, but never really a total night as we would know it. And that's why one of the star, one of the chapters is called No Stars for Aros, because they give that up when they finish the sphere. Aros is, is their home world, the main planet of... Yes, Aros Prime is their home world, and so the civilization is called Arosaria, and uh, that's, that's how they shorten the word to Aros. And uh, orbital mechanics as we know it has been pretty much thrown out the window because they seem to be able to locate their planets and moons pretty much where they feel like. Yeah, they do. Which they is do. nice. I'd, I'd like to do that. I, You know, it would be terrific to have control over molecular motion, and that's pretty much what sets them apart from the beginning, is that they're given an awfully wonderful palette by their gods, uh, which includes molecular and atomic uh, control. Uh, which gives them free and unlimited energy, and a tremendous amount of energy at that. Not everybody's using the energy for good, unfortunately. No, not a, um, yes, Anivnus, our, our villain, uh, is, uh, is quite, quite opposed to it. And he is, uh, completely opposed. His argument is larger, because not only does he not, does he have a an alternative purpose for helping design the sphere? But he is absolutely convinced that mortal life, as they know it, is what he does not want to participate in. His vision is to return to the immortal realm, the God's realm, to renounce mortality. And he's going to use the sphere itself for that purpose if he can possibly get away with it. Boy, everybody wants to... to not just to rule the world, but to annihilate. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Everybody's definition of the future, uh, the future potential, uh, it leads off in a wildly different direction. Well, yes. If we can, we can edit this if I'll get in trouble for saying so, but one of the synopses I'm reading has to do with uh, uh, killing off all the females of, of the, the Oris race. I'm well, I'm not pleased about this. And what kind of woman-killing 
vermin why are you is this writer for doing that <laughs> well actually it ends up being a wonderful testament to the mystical feminine because uh the lament of the gods uh when they have created the war uh the civil war which is very much like when uh in in our judeo-christian tradition when when uh we disobey god and when we get in uh, into opposition with his rules we get punished at least in certain old testament stories and things and certainly the mercurial greek gods sending down lightning bolts and doing all kinds of things and changing people into titans and hydras and and transforming them but the arsarian gods are so furious with their civil war for inner power that they don't know whether or not they want the race to continue and so therefore they bring all the females the ris back to heaven for an immortal life. Oh, uh, our eyes is back to heaven. That's and, and that's sort tactful. of leave them wondering, leave the males lamenting and wondering, well, what's the purpose? What are we going to do? And therefore, Earth becomes even more important to them than originally thought. So Mars needs women and, and all we are is breeding stock, huh? No, not at all. Just thought it, I'd ask. It's a much more tender story than that. And as the Arasarian males, as the Arans come to Earth in a very beleaguered state, because their journey has occurred during this very mercurial war, which they had were powerless to 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 do anything about because they were in transit from Arasaria to Earth. When they arrive on Earth, they find that they are in wonderment, uh, but they still want to go ahead with the coexistence philosophy that their mission originally entailed. And therefore, when they meet human men and women, it's not so much a breeding thing as a learning experience. And one of the things that I'm really proud of is some of the comments that I've been given by readers as they read through the arc of the story, one and two and three, is how the Arasarians change and how their, uh, their feelings, their motivations, and their hearts change from their sort of lofty, godlike, overarching principles uh, and commanding principles into becoming more human-like and how their character develops and how they actually, rather than just breeding with uh, human females, how they actually come to love them, respect them, and empower them. I'll look forward to uh, reading the rest of this and finding out about that then. I hope you will. I hope you will. So what, let's talk about the, uh, the lead characters in all of this. Ah. Yes. Um, Susan? Well, at first I thought they were all directly related by blood, and I suppose in a, in a manner of speaking, they all are born of one, one egg, one sphere. Right. But their, their emperor uh, comes, walks upon the earth first, and secondly is, is the great evildoer, and that's Boy, that's sounding an awful lot like Paradise Lost already. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, I meant that. I meant that yes. in a good way. And I appreciate that. I really do. I, I do. I don't know the yeah. correct way to uh, pronounce all the characters' names, so please, please forgive me. Arhanus, the the first mortal being, mm -hmm. is uh, is uh, is the emperor, becomes the emperor, and then as the other mortal beings burn down and descend 
into mortal life. We have Monaya, Iskanye, Melifor, who is the wife, uh, the consort of Arhanas, Lyria, who is the beloved of Monaya. I'm going to miss uh, them. Pardon? I'm going to miss them. I liked, I liked the female well, you characters. you may not have seen the last of them. Oh, now you tell me. <laughs> I've worked up a good mad all about the whole thing. and. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that some of that is dashed in a good way. But as you mentioned, Anivness, um, and one of the things that I tried to do with these names also, uh, by the way, was I tried to think of names that have, a, well, a sort of an allegorical sense that might remind us, and I was just playing with it, really, uh, coming from a background of film and theater, of like how these names could maybe reflect a uh, maybe a subliminal meeting, like Arhanas is sort of our... Highness. Oh, okay. Anivness is doesn't sound very good. I mean, you hear the name; it's not a very friendly name. If I say this is my friend Anivness, you sort of get maybe a kind of difficult kind of interpretation. So and, he's an evil. And yeah, exactly, exactly. Amonmus, uh, the high priest. I wanted a name that would sound a little bit Egyptian in flavor, a little bit more mysterious. And that's why I chose for his consort, his beloved, uh, her name is Iskanye, which I thought also had a sort of a, you know, a, 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 an, Eastern, an Eastern Egyptian, Eastern African, uh, Arabian kind of feel to it. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of Alesai, the palace steward, he's just fun. It's an easy kind of relaxed uh, personality. He, he ends up being kind of the the butt of jokes and also carries some of the humor through the story because it is, you know, a, a kind of a Wagnerian in the sense that it's, it, it's, it's heavy and big and it's world building sensibility. So that's Falstaff. kind of how I came about the names. Yeah. you you got a point there. Falstaff. I hope he comes to a better end though. <laughs> he does. He does indeed. Oh, He's a survivor. He's a really clever survivor. And also one of the things that I wanted to do with the Ocelins or the dragons in this sense, was make them not like wizard and wizard dragons that we've seen many times and we all love and love them and Smaug and all of these characters and, um, from Tolkien, etc. But I wanted to make the, the music dragons are a little bit different in their sensibilities, how they communicate with the Arasarians, what their purpose is. And so I wanted to give them names that would reflect a musical kind of sensibility. And being a, a, a musicologist myself, I named them after organ stops. So Montre is a pipe organ stop, and Preston uh, is also an organ stop. Yes, I, I, whole step, half step, octave, those, those words I knew. I was Regular musical about names, exactly. Yeah, so it's all musical. That's good. And then Viola Sorda also is an organ stop. Then uh, they're not seen every day, so I thought, well, let's use them. Let's put them to multiple task use. It is cool. I like that. I'm going, everyone's going to want, a, when this movie's made, and it's going to be a movie, uh, everyone's going to yeah. want a fuzzy dragon. I hope so. I hope so. And Manaya Meals and all the other wonderful <laughs> things. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Manaya Meals. That's maniacally good. Oh, boy. Because, let's face it, if we called them sad meals, kids wouldn't want to buy them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you. I don't know about Thank that too much. Yeah. So let's, of, yeah. 
So let's talk about film prospects. The uh, yeah. articles seem to, has it been optioned? Is it in development? Are you writing any of this uh, script work? I have executed a, a feature length script, which is an arc of mostly of book three, but contains elements of the other books. But where the big, uh, where the central story really comes into focus with Manaya and Emily, his human wife, you have a clear hero and heroine who really carry the bulk of the story and the arc of the story through. But I may not be the guy to write the script. So uh, I'm looking at uh, possibilities of other people who may want to polish it or a rewrite it, collaborate it, and we have some people going on with that. We're going to create a sizzle reel in the fall uh, or before um, the new year, which I'm very excited about because we'll be working with people from ILM. Oh, excellent. Yeah. So we're really, really happy about that. And right now we have uh, a... a co-producing entity that's looking at the entire treatment, the illustrated treatment, the script, they're reading the books, and they're pretty excited about it. It may may fit their mandate, and I hope it will, but we are definitely moving substantively forward because this will be my third feature film. I made a little thriller many years ago called Love.com, uh, which I associate produce, and then uh, we are now getting ready to work on a drama uh, feature, which will be my second feature film called MIA, um, which is really the true story of my mother and father. And um, we have some substantively powerful people involved with that. I'm very, very proud of that. Very proud of that. So um, we'll see as we, as we move forward. But as you can uh, imagine, and I'm sure as you know, uh, there are so many components and elements that have to come together in order to make it realized. But it's moving forward very strongly. You know, 30 years makes you an overnight success. <laughs> oh, that yes. is showbiz. <laughs> oh, yes. That's right. That's right. I've done documentary work. I have two documentaries, uh, The Changing Face of Autism, I'm very proud of, which was a award-nominated film, and the Walt Disney Concert Hall Organ, which we may be seeing on PBS soon. Keep your fingers oh, really? crossed because we're, um, we're to talking to them right now. Yeah, I'd be well, looking the Walt forward to Disney that. Hall is such a remarkable location. It would have to have a remarkable organ involved. You know, it's amazing. Uh, it was designed in part by Frank Geary, and we call it the organ of the future because it literally looks like someone took a bunch of pipes and sticks and threw them against the wall because he wanted a deconstructed uh, of appearance to reflect his architecture. He didn't want, you know, a traditional concert hall instrument. So I was asked to do this documentary a couple of years ago, and it is now distributed with Culture International Films. And uh, PBS is very seriously looking at it because this year is the 10th anniversary of the concert hall. How did that happen? That's still that new place. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. I couldn't agree with you more. I thought when when they uh, when we were talking about it and someone said, you know, it's the 10th anniversary, and I said, no, it's not. It's the fifth anniversary. And I was like, no, it's the tenth anniversary. Look it up. So, yeah. Well, and it had such a, a dramatic effect on the uh, the local culture in Los Angeles when it did open. Yeah, like we yes. have some. You know, the Amundsen Theater had to sort of move over and make a little room for it. Absolutely. You know, in terms in terms of the cultural impact. Absolutely, as did the Dorothy Jandler Pavilion, mm -hmm. because it was a whole new paradigm. 
and it established uh, the LA concert world into a into a place where they had long needed a venue to reflect absolute concert music and to reflect a variety of musical venues. You know, it, it enjoys. Uh, they even have silent films uh, during Halloween that the organ accompanies, which are lots of fun. There are jazz groups, youth groups, uh, African American music, ethnic music, jazz music. It, it is a it is a robust venue. I'm very and it's scientifically, you know, made as any any fine instrument in the world. It's supposed. Uh, a music uh, professor I know describes it as, as acoustically perfect in this and the uh, the great organ there uh, if that's not science fiction I don't know what is it's there's certainly science involved there truly is 6,200 pipes it weighs about uh, I think 112 tons and there's over uh, I don't know you could use enough wiring to light a small town with it it's an amazing it took a year to install and to tune. And to tune. Can you That's, imagine tuning? Yeah. Oh my well, we gosh. have all those pipes. You say it's an acoustic instrument. It's not just, just in tuning, electronically is... generated. So mm. though every tube, every note, uh, has to be exactly the right size. Yeah, and it's That's more exactly than just right. it's more than just the the voice of each pipe. It's the voice of each pipe as it affects the space around it. Uh, which can actually have some frequency bending properties, as it turns out. Completely, and ensemble playing as well, because the, the, the various different ranks of sounds work in a rather orchestral way with each other. And so, as they are brought into play, they create a sort of ensemble. So, yeah, it's an amazing, you know, the, the pipe organ is almost 3,200 years old. So it's a very, very ancient instrument and a very strange instrument in many ways. So um, this talk of science fiction, yeah, in which uh, you know it's kind of an easy thing to fall into if you're on a science fiction radio show on a science fiction radio station. Uh, I noted in your IMDb uh, credits list that you worked on um, Star Trek: The Continuing Voyages. I did. I had a great pleasure working with that. That was Mark Sacree, uh and his team. Um, and it, the, the episode that I worked on was uh, World Enough and Time, which starred George Takei and also uh, some other people from uh, the original shows. And what was so amazing about that? Have you seen any of them? Yes, um, I've got a, uh, one of my old school chums is a... Uh, one of the producers on that, Greg Schnitzer, and I am not in one whit surprised that he wound up doing this. <laughs> well, you know what's so what's so really great about it is that first of all, Paramount lets them do it, and secondly, that they were able to so beautifully replicate the old look of the old sets, the the, the bridge, the all of the uh, the equipment, the costuming, and really get the flavor. Of that, and one of the because reasons, 40, 40 years ago, these were the kids who memorized every episode, oh, yeah, and every yeah. scene, and of course they knew what it looked like, and they it, could and, find it and, in and their it's sleep. and beautifully executed. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to work on World Enough in Time was I really liked the story. Uh, I always enjoy, you know, Mark Sacree is a master, and I enjoy working with him on anything. But one of the things that was so wonderful about that particular story was that. It used both the 
the new generations kind of uh, Star Trek set, that is the bridge that we saw in the television show, as well as the old Star Trek, the, you know, the classic series, because the story goes through you know, a time kind of travel thing. So they were able to bridge both of those in a very, very uh, wonderful way, and it just came off beautifully. In a way, it may be what Generations was supposed to be. So how did you become involved with that project? Well, I've known Mark for many years, and... Uh, Everybody I, knows Mark. And <laughs> I swear that man is a nexus of, of people. He is. It's certainly and, of science uh, fiction and, and uh, I mean, sliders and all of that. Yeah, yeah and uh, a masterful writer and and so when he uh, when they were putting this together he said hey you know would you like to help and i said absolutely this was i think this was only the second one of the series if i recall the first one had generated so much heat that he was very excited to do the second one i may be wrong but i think it was the second one and we shot it here mostly in la and then they also shot it in tanawanda new york mm-hmm. and um yeah, I was very happy to do that. And of course, anytime you can work with George Takei, it's just an absolute pleasure. And just being on set with him is just, you know, a consummate professional, a funny man, and a brilliant, wonderful person. So it was a total joy to do that. And the master of the social media. Yes, he's become quite that. Absolutely. <laughs> it's yes. such a strange evolution. Such a I strange know. evolution. And it's really, if you wanted to write a science fiction story about a character from, you know, I mean, who, who was at one point in his life interned in a, in a camp in a, in a free country and then becomes an icon of a space travel, I think you pretty much have a, you know, a story where somebody might say, oh, that's never going to happen. <laughs> no. Well, you know, life is stranger than fiction because fiction has to make sense. It all it always does. Yeah. So, what is it? What is it about science fiction that uh, that appeals to you? Why? Why That's did you? Question. What got under your skin to, to that got you going in the direction of writing novels? That's a great question. And when I was a kid, I was glued to it. And um, you know, I grew up in a film family. So my godfather was uh, Sam Spiegel, the famous film producer of Bridge Over the River Kwai, Lawrence of Arabia. So I was exposed to a lot of film and television, of course. So I was always watching. And I, I you know, I remember um, my dad taking me to see 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And I was absolutely mesmerized by that film. And um, then I began to explore it, and, but I was also very, also much very interested in history, in architecture, in music, in opera, um, plays, all kind, everything. And so I began to devour it. I began to read, you know, Jules Verne. I started to read Robert Heinlein, um, Isaac Asimov, and, and I just, you know, it was an insatiable kind of uh, thing. Frank Herbert, um, and um, and so. It got into my soul pretty much right away. And I started to develop Next to the Gods as a boy. Um, oddly enough, it was always that title. It just instantly came to me that that was the title it needed to be. And I started to write these little episodic vignettes, sort of little stories, you know, and adventure stories. And then they began to grow and grow. And over the years, I nurtured it. Um, and then, of course, we've seen science fiction just you know, 
explode and develop into so many wonderful ways over the decades that it's just been a, a lifelong fascination. And George Lucas, uh, uh, the yeah. creator of Industrial Light and Magic, with whom you know, some of the people uh, from there of whom are helping you with your uh, sizzle reel. Will be. Uh, will be. Will yeah. be. Um, yeah. And he, it doesn't get any really, better than that. He really, yes, he really did. He really sort of broke the dam open so he that really the rest did. of us could come charging through. And before, Well, you know, also, it, it, yeah, and his vision, he and Spielberg and... Uh, and um, you could say George Powell before them, you know, with the original War of the Worlds and things. We're really taking, looking at science fiction in a way that was, uh, was um, revolutionary in, in so many ways. And, of course, George, with the way he shot everything and everything, we all remember in the 70s when we first, you know, how, how, Star, how uh, Star Wars affected us because it literally brought the, rea- the realization or the the myth present, the, the, the believability of watching it and participating in an entirely new way. You know, before those days, we could sort of look at things and say, you know, I can see a string or I can kind of tell that's a model, but you'd forgive it because you loved it and it was fun. Mm-hmm. But with George, everything was changed. And of course, preceding him was 2001 with Stanley Kubrick, which was uh, a, a just a glorious film, and I just saw a director's cut of it recently again, and I was just as riveted as I was 30 years ago, and watched every frame of it. It's an absolutely magnificent picture. And the accomplishment uh, that's yeah. frequently overlooked uh, by both films, by modern audiences, is that neither of them was done with the help of uh, computer animation. Nope. I mean. Um, uh, both of them used computer-controlled camera tracks. And uh, models. Yeah, and, and beautiful and, but, models. But, In fact, at the L.A., uh, at the MoMA Museum just recently, was it last uh, winter, that there was a beautiful Kubrick exhibit that had uh, the, the uh, Discovery spaceship and the maquette for the room at the end of the film, the white room, you know, with the obelisk in it. Mm-hmm. And the maquette was, I think, uh, eight feet long by four feet high. It was a absolutely perfect replication of the room. Uh, so to see how he was using his camera and how he was uh, uh, revolutionizing this. And also, it was always so cool to me that, and one of the reasons I think that picture stands up is because it is so evocative and so strange and quiet in a way. Uh, and you don't have lasers blasting all over the place. And when the spaceships are moving, they're completely quiet. There's no sound, there's no blasting of constant uh, thrust behind them, because, of course, there's no reason to do that. So he was very well-researched also, exceedingly well-researched. Well, and, and um, I think uh, Kubrick took uh, notes from the, uh, the tradition of the French cinema, which is, yeah. um, uh, which is to say that French cinema expects a more literate a more film literate audience, I think. They, uh, you are expected to bring almost as much to the table as the film, uh, the the director of the film, and, and I I would say that in this case, you know, Kubrick certainly qualifies as an auteur director. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. But um, uh, that's very evident in two thousand one, A Space Odyssey, and uh, very frequently you would. When I, I remember when the film came out, uh, 
about half the people who saw it thought it was great, but didn't quite understand what they were looking at. To some extent, Arthur C. Clarke kind of agreed with them and turned around and wrote the book to explain it all. That's the order in which that happened. (laughs) That's right. The the book 2001 followed the movie, Mm -hmm. which in turn was based on the original short story. The Sentinel. The Sentinel. Right. Sort of. Exactly right. And he managed to keep, Kubrick that is, managed to keep that exceedingly, what I love about it, and when I say it's quietness, is we don't, we're not given everything. We're not given to understand everything. It is a very metaphysical film in that sense. And so the intelligence, the aliens, the, the entity messenger, whatever it is that you want to interpret, is left to the viewer and the, in the film to absolutely interpret it in a multitude of ways. And this creates to me uh, a, a, a sort of a monumental feeling, you know, a, a very vast feeling of, of intellect beyond our understanding, which doesn't need to explain itself to us. And I thought that this was probably, in a way, chilling, but also, in a way, um, beautiful and evocative. What I think he what I think he did was um, instead of just taking the reader by the hand and and throwing them into the vat with the storyline, uh, instead Kubrick created a universe and allowed us to visit it and allow and, well, and, and let us dwell there for a while. And we discovered what was going on exactly mm-hmm. as the characters did. As, I as think mankind. that's absolutely well said. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. That's very well said. It's, it allows us to journey with him and we're not just thrown into to to something yeah but we're we're allowed uh we're allowed to reside in that universe for a while yeah. and and yeah uh, see and things totally and things for ourselves you. yes yeah yeah and so this is this, the act you're gonna have to follow <laughs> well in your you know, in your next film <laughs> i if i could only be so fortunate as to achieve half of that uh beatific vision i would be very humble to do so, um, but being inspired by by that kind of of, of level of, of beauty and all, we're just so lucky to have it. You know, and and the great thing now is that, and in thanks to also to you, there's so many people now. Uh, science fiction now has so many platforms. You know, content is as a producer, we're always being approached by content too, and um, there are so many hungry. Uh, uh, content uh, providers and there's so many areas now for people to bring their stories to to vision and to share them because now we have more platforms than we ever had before and i think every year it only increases exponentially and I, and as as uh, the sainted theodore Sur- sturgeon said for 90 percent of it is still crap but uh, <laughs> But the 10% is getting to be a larger amount of good stuff. So we have plenty to look forward to. Yes. And, you know, I also think that that there is really a lot of really great content out there. There truly is. And the, you know, it's presentation. It's, it's, you know, someone can take uh, someone. Because, you know, again, in, in, in filmmaking also, you can't do everything. And if you try to, um, usually 
can make a mistake unless you are George Lucas or Stanley Kubrick, in which you have such a titanic brain and such a great talent that oh, you have. Because Lucas never made a mistake. <laughs> but you know, but but I'm saying that I think that there's that ten percent is really larger than than sometimes we think it is. Howard and you know, a lot dark. of I mean, as a filmmaker and a producer, uh, you know, there are thousands of films that are shot all the time. It's which ones get distributed mm-hmm. is, you know, part of the part of the game and part of the, the fiercely competitive nature of our industry. Yeah, so, but with YouTube, anybody can distribute. Well, yes, but and, can you um, be seen? That's well, the thing. it's great. Whether you do it's your bad, own... good, or indifferent, that that people distribute. Um, the only thing I'm not particularly, or really not interested in, is things that are overtly um, gratuitous, just for the sake of it. It just doesn't do anything for me. I don't really want to see a lot of slashing and murder and everything. This is too dark for me. But well, and you're not telling a story. You're not adding to the texture of the human experience doing that. I agree. I just agree. Every, just when everybody echoing. thinks he's a filmmaker or an author or a you know, a, a sandwich maker, you know, a lot of crappy sandwiches are going to get made and, and sold. So that's right. You know, as a it's deli good, owner in New York once said to me, that's not a very good sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, but everybody thinks you're a filmmaker now and, and yeah, we they can put a... stuff up on, on YouTube and, and it's there. We used to have a Absolutely. joke at UCLA film school when I was going there. It's uh Every student film had a cast of thousands. Sam Thousands. He runs the corner deli. He's a nice man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think I ate there once. <laughs> the, uh, um, you know, what strikes me about the, uh, the current situation uh, with distribution is that it is becoming, it, it began in, actually in the 70s, uh, when studios began, began distributing but not producing um, and we are the business is becoming more and more and more granular to mm-hmm. the point now where individual people are making movies and yes. uh, and this is actually a viable thing to try to do uh, yeah. where where you couldn't you couldn't attempt that thirty years ago well, and you know I think um, going back to the the Star Trek world enough in time and that that series like that Mark Sacre did, I think that's exactly what they did is they finally said, "Let's just make it ourselves." Oh, you mean the new Space Command series? No, uh, well that too. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the trailer. Yeah, I haven't. I have nothing seen to see. There's yet. nothing to see yet. But, but I was talking about the Star Trek uh-huh. uh, things that we were talking about earlier. World enough in time and that's those it. New heck with it. Let's do it ourselves. And they got some real Star Trek. Uh, Actors exactly. in on it. Good for them. Exactly. And, and they did it well. Much, yes, and they did. And it's as much Star Trek as anything else ever done. And it's more than true. some. <laughs> yes, and more than some. I Spectre so. with a gun. I think hey, so. hey, that was great. That, <laughs> that miseducated a whole generation of children about the, the whole, you know, uh, OK Corral incident. <laughs> what? You mean Wyatt Earp was a good guy? What? <laughs> I thought he was an evil alien. <laughs> love, love the twists because really you know sometimes you think they're evil and they're not so much and um the whole concept also of anti-heroes versus aliens this is something that i explore in next to the gods frequently because this is what real people are like not everybody is black and white evil good loving sweet we're all mixtures of that in between some people are just absolutely bad 
but some people are driven by other or characters driven by other scenarios. So I wanted to also have that sort of opera um, contextual feeling in that. So as you go through and as people and as the characters develop, there are people who you root for in different capacities. And so that, uh, for example, Kalon Talisar, the brother of Mamaya in the film, I think is a very interesting character because he's not evil. He's an anti-hero. And what pushes him into his eventual state of, of, uh, of falling away from the, from the paradigm that is set forth and from straying from the imperial family and wanting to do his own thing is simply because he just doesn't believe in what they're doing. And he, did, and he wants to do his own thing. And, um, and so I think that that's important. Um, and I do think it's important for young readers too, um, that there not be just specific set archetypes, you know, in, in, in very compacted ways that, you know, this is who you are and that's who you are, because we're all so much more. Well, I think you've hit on something very important, which is that no, there are no villains. I mean, there are people who do villainous things, but they always do them for reasons that they think are good or justified. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do something villainous today. I do. I do. Yesterday, I was really... You know, I, but it, everyone. I agree. In the, I agree in that. You know, I think that that people do. You know, have their own. You know, they, as you say, their their version, their version of good, and their belief system, which motivates them towards whatever it may be, and whether it be going out and being of service to the community or going out and setting bombs, they believe in what they're doing. I think. Some of them are simply bat cave crazy, and uh, some yes. people are simply sociopaths, and unfortunately, that's what the world is uh, made up of. Uh, and um, and egomaniacs like Stalin and Hitler, and and these people who who uh, are just monstrous in our eyes, but who believe whatever that they were doing. Um, and in between that are people who are all different shades of good, bad, evil, indifferent. There are people who are apathetic. There are people who are involved and people who are never involved. And uh, people who care and people who don't care. So I wanted to have an accurate reflection of that kind of society so that people aren't just traipsing around and next to the gods, holding swords and making statements and jumping off things and uh, because of of some kind of archetypal feeling. That's one of the things I really wanted to get away from. And fortunately, my readers are getting onto that and really enjoying that, which I'm very happy about. Because oh, if I thought if I didn't get that one right, if I, you know, if I missed other things, but at least if I got that right, I would doing a service to be do, doing a service to science fiction as a write, as a written art form as well as a story form. And that's what took so long to craft, because. You know, 15, 20 years ago, even though my imagination was firing pistons and I had little ideas, I didn't have the maturity to really, in certain senses, uh, write those characters in a way that would be in-depth or believable. And, you know, life gave me the, the, the experience to, to hurt, to suffer, and to feel triumph and to feel joy so that I was able to translate that, I hope, more 
readily into an ongoing story that people can connect with. And that's the matter of uh, experience is is absolutely critical in the maturity of a writer. Um, Teacher and author David Gerald says that the the first million words are just practice. (laughs) You may sell your practice and that's good, but they are just practice. And that is so true because the first million words uh, were never published. And uh, they weren't. Uh, I can truthfully say that. Okay. <laughs> and maybe they'll dig them up someday. And <laughs> Oh, I hope not because I think I've disposed of them quite properly. Oh, okay. <laughs> I kind of did that after film school, I'm afraid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I tried you know, to work in, in, in working on scripts and, and novels and short stories and things, of course, are completely different. And I published a, a, a romantic fantasy called Lovecraft also last year, which, is, which people really enjoy. Um, and it's a total departure. It's not science fiction. It's not anything. It's just the character of H.P. Lovecraft sort of narrating the story of these two lovers, this boy and this girl, um, who are having a romantic journey and their parents and how dysfunctional parents there are which was the, the twist on it, because that becomes the love craft, the craft of love. And So I neither of them is a creature of the deep or anything? Nothing like that, oh, okay. absolutely whatsoever. Um, and so it, it's, it's really fun to flex your, your, your different, you know, I, I absolutely adore uh, writing science uh, writing science fiction and, and writing next to the gods is something I'll be proud of for the rest of my life but it was hard hard and it and the thing is that when you're in the world building genre as vast as it may be uh, it is still an enclosed world like the Dyson sphere and there are certain things you just can't get away from you have to remember where that character was what this story is what that particular arc is where this is going on so it's really enjoyable sometimes to sit down open a script start and write a you know a 90 minute drama or a 90 minute or 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 another science fiction or another uh genre of film and enjoy that um and see how that goes and also translating them from one to the other from book Mm -hmm. to script and from script to book is is a really powerful exercise that i recommend to writers because it really does stretch you. This is why the, they have a separate Oscar for that sort of thing. And well, they should. So um, do you find yourself, uh, are there times when you have a deadline and you have to hit it and you find yourself just grinding through it on craft alone rather than inspiration? Um, no, because I try very hard not to put myself into a place where there's going to be a deadline that's going to be that, that pressing. And I, and the reason I do is because I also think that it, as you say, it acts, it, it can be very harmful in pushing you into a place where you absolutely get in trouble, where you're forcing the writing. Now, working on a deadline though is a professional thing that, that writers have to do. So I just try and know as quickly as I can what the time frame is so that I can get the work done without getting to that place, mm-hmm. without getting to the place where I'm just going to have to use craft alone and I'm going to have to pull bags out of tricks. Try and keep the writing as fresh as I can. And I think that, you know, the more notice I have to get something done, the better that that works. 
So, so how thick is your how thick is your world building notebook for uh, next to the gods? How many how many d- hundreds of pages of background material have you got? It's probably all on a computer. He's looking. Days. He's looking to his left. He's on camera. He's looking to his left to see if uh, I'm looking at a shelf out. at a baker shelf that has four uh, two inch ring binders, and <laughs> that's it. That answers the question. That's it. That's as a well lot as, of pages. as as you say, Susan, quite a lot on computer as well. Um, a lot of visual cues, a lot of things that just inspired me. Um, I used to keep a formula on, on my computer written on, on a post-it. And it said, um, uh, suspense, suspense, suspense. The second one was, you can make it complex as you want, as long as it's absolutely clear. And the minute you get bored with it, they will. Which goes to back to when you're, I think, refers back to when you were just talking about, uh, you know, writing on a deadline. And so that when I would, and there were many nights when it was three or four o'clock in the morning, I had no idea what time it is. And I was writing and writing and all of a sudden, whoa, I would get very, you know, that wave comes over. You're like, I'm exhausted. I have to, I have to stop right now. And, uh, or you'd be writing something and you're just not quite all the way there. So I would always try and stop. At that moment, I would not try to keep going because I didn't want to force it because I don't want that to be forced upon people. So how much more are you going to have to force yourself on this? Is books is book four finished? Book four is finished, but it's not edited. Okay. So, um, when can we, we move... expect to see that? What? Pardon me? Sorry. When can we expect to see it on the shelves? I think probably next year or maybe even the next. What we're doing now is with with the uh, with the marketing and with with the uh, uh, PR and all of the things that are involved in Next to the Gods as it is. The concept is to sort of play it along a little bit, you know, and not not because once book four is done, I'm pretty sure I'll be done with the series. I it, and it, it is a definite wind up. It, I don't leave you hanging. There is a very formidable and formative end to the series. So that work can be explored within that, but pretty much not beyond it. Um, and uh, so we want to uh, continue to do a lot of aspects that we're doing as far as marketing and everything, and, and then we'll look at book four coming out. But it, it's written. It just needs to be edited. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to that. Well, I'm glad you are. And here I was, you know, ex- fully expecting to be mean and and say say mean things to you, and I just don't <laughs> want to. You've just been too nice. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and, and explaining everything as we went. And, and very now illuminating. I'm have to... This has been a fascinating discussion. Really I'm, interesting. I'm, no. And and I am chastised. <laughs> oh, you shouldn't be chastised. A little. I'm hum- humbled. But you know what? Redeemed? We're all living here in California, going over there. You're over there. I'm over here. That's what we're doing here in California. <laughs> that's, very oh, that's very good. Oh, that's very good. And I wanted to say also Come with me, uh, that I'm not a crook. And I don't write crooked stories. Because uh, I don't believe that's the way to go. And I think the country's not ready for crooked stories. So, so basically, he's the, the, he's the master, voice actors, the voice, voice, actor, voice work as well. Voice work, but only of California governors. <laughs> <laughs> nobody see. Nobody would know Gray Davis if he did him, but you know. <laughs> yeah. And and I wouldn't know how to do him either. I either. 
So do you have have you done voiceover work for uh, animated films? I have done Would little, you like and to? I'm going to do some more. I haven't really had the chance to get into it as much as I'm going to, but it's coming up to do that. What yeah, an intriguing Because I've been statement. doing this at parties and events, and uh, for for you know friends and things for many years, and they're all like, "You are you kidding me? You've got it." So <laughs> I'm I'm really starting to talk to uh, substantively to a voiceover agent well, now. Well, you know, we're we've got this uh, space opera we're working on. Uh, it's in pre-production now, called Halfway Home, about life in the asteroid belt, and we're doing some casting. Cool. So. So what the heck, we may ask. What the heck, you might get asked. If, well, let me, I'll be happy to help you. It would be my absolute pleasure. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. We're also going to ask you for, sta- we're also ask you for station IDs when, when we're done with the interview here, which we're very nearly up to our hour. Okay, absolutely. Well, I, you know, it's it's just, again, it's a real pleasure. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, you guys and Krypton Radio is is one of the people out is one of the organizations out there doing a wonderful wonderful thing for all of us science fiction writers and readers. Um, your website is awesome. It's very clear. It's easy to navigate. It's easy to see what you're up to. You're you know great hosts. You've been very kind, and you know I really appreciate it from the science fiction as as a member of the community. Just to thank you for for helping us along and for doing what you do because it's it's informative and articulate and and that's really a good thing it's a great thing and here we are in in california and you know uh it's it's a lovely place to be it's a great vibe it's a great energy and i'm just a you know thrilled to be a part of it and i really appreciate it well we really appreciate having you on the show raul mongulardi Thank you so much for joining us on this, I believe, is episode 65 of the Event Horizon uh, here on Krypton Radio. And we're, uh, we're very glad you were able to join us this evening. My pleasure. You have just heard episode 65 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for July 12th, 2014, with our guest, Raul Mangiolardi science fiction writer and film producer and director, and author of the science fiction novel series Next to the Gods, available from Amazon.com. Your hosts have been station manager Gene Turnbow and the station's executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on Sunday, July 13, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and again on Thursday, July 17th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. You'll find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Corsair's closet producer Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.